I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. We're looking uh, at the book of Genesis in some detail, but not in too much detail. We're going to look today at... uh, the first five chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 5. As we think about an overview of some points of the book of Genesis, we think we want want to say who wrote it, and we'd say that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. We understand that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, of the Bible, and we sometimes refer to this as the Pentateuch or the Torah, Maybe we don't use those words all that often, but you know, of course, we share the Old Testament with people that are Jewish, and they would call it the Hebrew Bible, and those are the words they tend to use. The Pentateuch emphasizes that idea of five, the first five books of the Bible, and then the word Torah means teaching or instruction, and that's the way uh, that that was looked at. These, these five books of the Bible were to lead them in the right way, to lead us in the right way, as we think on these things. And we sometimes refer to it as the Law of Moses. In our, in our Christian Bibles, we uh, use that name Genesis as the title. Uh, and we also see that repeated pattern in the book of Genesis that talks about the generations. And that's where that title comes from. As we see 11 times throughout uh, the book of Genesis, we have these uh, toledot, these generations, the generations of so-and-so. Usually it's a person, and then it'll talk about all of their descendants. Now, the Jewish custom of naming the books of the Hebrew Bible was to call it by the first, the first word in the book. We kind of do that in our songbooks. We forget the title of a song, but we remember the first line, and we look in our index in the back, and it, it lists it that way because that's how we are. Uh, but the Jewish name for uh, this would be equivalent to in the beginning. That's, of course, how the book begins. And the Hebrew word would be Bereshit. And so that's what Jewish people call it. They call this Bereshit. In the beginning. But both of those names are appropriate as we think about what this is. The book of Genesis, it's about beginnings, the beginnings of everything. And it records the generations or the genealogies of, of Adam and each of these larger groups down from Adam. And, of course, the last of these in the book of Genesis is in Genesis chapter 37 where we have Jacob or Israel as his name was changed to he has uh, the last of these generations of listings and of course that concludes with the the death of Joseph there at the end of the book so we think about the first five chapters in very broad brushstrokes chapter one would cover the, the creation of the physical universe and all life The second chapter would zero in on part of that first chapter where the creation of man occurs. And then chapter 3, as we progress through the history of this, we see the fall of mankind where sin enters the world. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. We have sin progressing in the world with the murder of Abel by Cain's hand. And then chapter 5 is uh, one of these generation listing, some of these genealogies, a list of names. We'll take some points from there as well. 
So let's uh, think first about the, the creation of the earth here. In chapter 1, and I encourage you to have your Bibles open if they aren't already from our Scripture reading, we're going to pretty much be in Genesis, and I'll try to put some of the key passages on the screen as well. But here in chapter 1 of Genesis, we see an account of the origin of everything we see in the world today, the physical universe. Now this, this creation is not the creation of God. This is not the story of the beginning of God, because there isn't such a thing. God himself transcends time and space. While we may rightly say that man has an eternal soul, we have an eternal soul that extends into eternity. Really, it's it's sort of like a ray versus a line in geometry. We have a beginning point at conception where we we began. And then we hope for eternal life. And we work to be faithful so that we don't have eternal death. But we are eternal in that sense. Whereas, whereas God is eternal in both directions. He doesn't have a beginning point. He's eternal in the past. And he's eternal in the future. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because that's not how time works for us. But God is not bound by time. Revelation tells us that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Eternal in all aspects. But let's think about the creation as we read here in in, uh, Genesis chapter 1, these days of creation. On the first day, he created light. This this passage talks about darkness as well, but he says, let there be light. He created light, and then he said, you know, there's this separation, there's this order that God is creating from the initial creation of sort of chaos, and he's ordering it through his, his grand design. And he separates light from darkness, and he calls the light day, and the darkness he called night. So quite simply, he created light on the first day. On the second day, he adds more complexity. He forms the sky of the heavens and brings order by separating the waters above the sky and below the sky. We might think about uh, below, below the sky, is pretty easy for us to think about, oceans water on the, on the earth, right? And I think that's the idea here. At this point, what we would call the earth was really an ocean world. And then there was uh, waters above. Uh, at, at a minimum, we would think of the clouds and this sort of thing. But as we look forward to the account of the flood in, in Genesis 6 and beyond there, we see at one point the heavens, the, the windows of heavens open to bring waters on the flood. And so there's this sense, perhaps, that there was even a water above the sky that we don't see today. Nevertheless, we see God bringing order to this this world with the sky and the water. The third day, we see God bringing forth the land. There's this ocean world, and he's separating out and bringing forth land. And upon that land... He brings forth plants. And it's starting to become a little bit more familiar with what we're thinking about the earth. God created plants to grow on on this land. Animals will come later. Now, at this point, I'm going to think about this as two columns, the first three days and the second three days. And I'll ask for you to to play along and, and see if this makes sense to you. I think the first three days correspond 
to the second three days. The first three days, God created light. On the first day, I'm sorry, God created light. And on the first of the second set of three days, on the fourth day, he created the lights in heaven, the actual heavenly bodies, such as the sun and the moon and the stars, these, these things that populate the light activity. God doesn't use, or God doesn't have Moses use the word for moon and sun. We might feel that that's kind of odd how he, he talks about in the passage, he put lights in the sky and the greater light and the lesser light. They had words for sun and moon, but those were considered deities because people at Moses' day were already worshiping the sun and the moon. And so he didn't want to depict that God had created these false gods. God created the creation. God created the heavens and the earth. He created these lights. And men have perverted these things. He didn't want to taint that with these names that were attributed to false gods. So we see day one, the light. Day four, the lights. More complexity in the sky. In day two, we have we had the, the sky and the waters being separated by the sky. And then in day five, we see things to populate that sky and things to populate the waters. We see the birds and the sea creatures. Notice the beauty of God's design and how this is not some random weird thing like we would say today, some big bang or explosion. This is God's hand moving these pieces in such a way that his ordered creation comes about. He's speaking these things into creation. Day three, we had the land and then the plants on the land. And day six, God brings forth land animals and even man who dwells on the land. And of course, there's much more to say about the creation of man, which is, I I believe, why chapter one mentions it actually in some detail. And then chapter 2, he tells that story of the creation of man, Adam and Eve, in much more detail. And of course, on the seventh day, as we know, God rested. God ceased from his creation. And I don't think we're to understand that uh, God was tired or something like this. It was that he completed it. It was very good. Verse 31 tells us, that it was very good. And so then he's reigning over his beautiful, complete, and very good creation. Now, strictly speaking, this creation week really only took God six days. He only took six days to create these things. The seventh day is part of that week, but his activity of creation did not extend into the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested over his glorious creation. Now, one sidebar question we might have uh, as we think on the Old Testament, well, what about Jesus? How does Jesus play into this? We're Christians, and we're always interested in Jesus. Now, in the beginning, that might look like Genesis 1.1, but that is John 1.1. The Gospel of John, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And if we go on to read more of the chapter, as well you're probably familiar with, the word is referring to 
the one who was made flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, who, who is God and the Messiah. So we, we have him here explaining to us, John explains to us about creation, that Jesus was there and he was involved in it. When God said, let there be light, he's saying words. And the beginning was the word. There's a connection, isn't there? What about the Holy Spirit? Well, back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I don't think that the Jewish people at the time of Moses understood the Holy Spirit in the way we see it revealed in the New Testament. But there, there we see, right from the beginning, in print, that we see that reference to the Spirit of God. And we understand how that works. We see the threefold nature of God. God is one, but God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thinking about chapter 2, the creation of of people. Chapter 1 gave us a broad overview of the creation of the entire world, including the origins of the first man and woman. And now chapter 2 zooms in to focus on this aspect of day 6, the creation of mankind, here in more detail. In chapter 1, we learned that God decided to make man in his image. We go back and look at Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this might seem confusing. He created man, and but he's male and female. What, what is going on here? Especially in our day and age with so much controversy over this kind of thing. You know, this, this word for man here is also the same word for Adam, so sometimes it's translated as Adam's name. Not long ago, people understood when we would say man that sometimes we mean mankind or, or people or humans. But as we get so politically charged today, that can be confusing or controversial. And we might say God created humankind in his image. And these humans that God created, he created them in male and female types. And their names were Adam and Eve. We understand that. People still get upset, but that's the idea here. It's not really that complicated. God broadly made humans, and he specifically made them in a way that there were men and women. And we have that today. Distinct sexes, Adam and Eve, Matt and Rachel. So God charged Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill and subdue the earth. And certainly that works better with a man and a woman, since you need a man and a woman to reproduce. God knows what he's doing. These are silly, almost laughably simple things, but they are actually controversial today. Looking at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we have the first of these 11 Toledot, these, these genealogies, the generations of references. Now, the, the first one here, uh, we would think, would be of Adam, the first man. But interestingly, no, it's not about Adam. It's the generations of the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. Here's the generations. Kind of interesting. 
We would expect Adam or Noah, but it's the generations of the heavens and the earth. So who did the heavens and the earth generate? Adam. Man, or mankind. And so, thinking about that number 11, there's 11 of these, well, 10 of them pertain to, you know, human names. And so, we, we, as we look at Old Testament and even New Testament references to numbers, there's 7 and 3 and 12 are important numbers, and, and 10 is one of those powerful numbers as well. So, we can think of the 10 examples in Genesis plus the one that begins them all with the generations of the heavens and the earth. And notice the, the symmetry in this, Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. See how you walk down that staircase and you come back up? The heavens flanking both sides of that, the earth, and then the creation mentioned twice. We see a lot of that in, in biblical writings. Something to notice. Okay, so in verse 7, we see, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Again, we see the, the breath of life, this idea of a spirit, we're, we're given. This isn't given to animals. This is something special. God breathes into man, and it made in his image. This is where we came from. We are not a random explosion or chance or whatever. God created us. Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we have a rule being given. And we might see the rule as the first thing we see there. But really, we're, we're, it's a blessing. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God's giving this great blessing. Look at all these things. But be careful not to do this one thing. But maybe we see only just the, the no. Look at the yes. Look at the blessing, the provision that God made and provides us. We need to have that attitude as well. Now remember... At the end of day six, as portrayed in chapter one, at the end of all the creation, everything was very good. But here in the midst of of day six, as we see it recapitulated in chapter two, it's not all done yet. We're not at the end of the story from the end of of that. So here in, in chapter two, verse 18, we see, then the, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. And we certainly understand where this is headed with, with Eve. But before we get to that, we have verses 19 and 20, where Adam is inventorying all the animals. God's bringing these animals to him, and he's naming them. And he's recognizing that among all these animals... There's no proper helper for Adam in all of God's creation. There's nothing suitable or corresponding to him. And we shouldn't get the idea that, oh no, God's messed up and he's searching to find a fix for this. He, he's, that's not what it is at all. God is demonstrating to Adam the need 
by showing him all these things aren't for you. And then look at what I'm going to do. Look at what God's going to do to perfect this creation. He wants Adam to understand that there's no suitable helper so that he can understand and appreciate the next part of of God's creation that makes things very good. And I think we could almost take a, a sidebar and think of the example of the Old Testament, the, old, the Law of Moses, and the New Testament. And I think maybe we sometimes get confused and think, well, God tried to do things with the Old Testament, and it just didn't work. And so He had to start over and, and do the New Testament. And that's not the right perspective on that. God presented those things in the Old Law as a schoolmaster to Christ in the New Law so that we could see the burden of those things and recognize how much better things are in Christ. And I think in this way, he's showing Adam, look how these things aren't quite what they ought to be. Let me show you a better way. So in verse 21, we know that God caused Adam to go into a deep sleep and he removes a rib from his side and fashions it into a woman. Verse 23, then the man said, this is At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We can also go back to chapter 1, the conclusion of these things conclusion of the creation of man on day six as depicted in chapter one and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good it was very good because all those things in all six days including the creation of man and by the creation of man we mean the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve from his side that perfected things and it was very good this is the foundation of of marriage And we should recognize that and the importance of that. Now here at this point we might think they lived happily ever after. But if you're familiar with this, not so fast. Chapter 3, of course, is the the fall of mankind. It, It was very good. Mankind was living in harmony with God. We even see that God walked in the midst of the garden later. We see that referred to. The tree of life was there. Perhaps they could have lived forever in this paradise. But then people made bad choices. People sinned and messed everything up. Chapter 3 introduces us to the serpent. We learn in Revelation, of course, that the serpent is Satan, the adversary. The serpent sows the seeds of doubt. He tricks the woman by accusing God of being overly harsh and keeping all of the good things for himself. When in fact, God was providing every perfect blessing for them in this garden, this paradise. Genesis 3, starting in the second half of verse 1. He said to the woman, this is the serpent speaking, Did God actually say, 
You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is a liar, and God loves us. Satan uses the same tricks today, and we should not be unaware of his devices and his schemes. We need to know what God says so that we can recognize lies about God. The devil accuses God of having bad intentions. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accused Job. He misuses and perverts the Word of God. So let us be good students of God's Word so that we can recognize these things and be prepared. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we see the sin. God had provided all these things and given one simple rule, but yet they were deceived, or Eve was deceived by the temptation of the devil. And John clarifies for us in John chapter rather in 1 John chapter 2 that all temptation and, and sin is fundamentally the same as this very first sin and it falls into three categories as we read from 1 John 2:16 and 17 for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When we think of the desire of the flesh, we can't help but think the tree was good for food. The desire of the eyes, it says that she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And the pride of life, we see that it was desirable to make one wise. And these same things, we think about sins we've struggled with or even struggle today, they fall into these categories if we're honest with ourselves and think about that. And we should think about that. We need to be mindful of how this works so that we can overcome through Christ. So Adam and Eve knew they were in trouble. They tried to hide from God, and that never worked. They go through a blame game of whose fault it was that they had done these things. And then God puts a curse on the serpent. We have the prophecy of the, the woman's seed bruising the serpent's head and the serpent bruising the heel, referring to Jesus being put to death, but yet being victorious over death, defeating Satan. We see the woman having pain multiplied in childbirth. 
also told to submit to the husband. And then Adam and his failure to lead and, and work through these things in this situation, he, he, he wasn't deceived. He listened to his wife. So work is hard, and he will return to dust and die. And they were cast out of the garden, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. You know, we can look in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where we see, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And there's been a lot of false teaching about this sort of passage. This is not teaching about original sin. We're not guilty of what Adam did with the tree and the fruit of the tree. But Adam inaugurated sin into the world, Adam and Eve. And we are his children. We do the same kinds of things. But Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of Adam, brought everlasting life to us through the gift of his atoning sacrifice. We are able to be with God in New, New Jerusalem. We read in Revelation, the last couple chapters, this idea of New Jerusalem. And in the New Jerusalem, it's, it's a lot like the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is there. You know, we sang the song where the gates swing outward never. Well, in the Garden of Eden, the gates swung outward and Adam and Eve were kicked out and the, the angel of the Lord was keeping them from coming back in. Whereas, on the other side of history, we enter New Jerusalem and be with the Lord forever and we will never have to leave there. Chapter 4, we have Cain and Abel. We continue to see sin progress in the world with the incident of Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain cultivated crops and Abel was a shepherd. We aren't told exactly what they were told to do with regard to this offering, but each of them brought an offering to God. It says here in Genesis 4, starting in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And now later in the Law of Moses, we, we do see details about sacrifices, and we see some of them relating to animal sacrifices and some of them for grain sacrifices and drink offerings. But we, don't really, we can't really extrapolate from that what they were supposed to do here. But, but we do have the principle that God expects the best. It's not really a sacrifice to bring God your garbage, your unwanted leftovers. And we see here mentioned in Abel's offering that he, had, he brought not just some random animal, but the firstborn and of their fat portions, the best, the best. And, and that language is simply absent from whatever it is here that, that Cain brought. He, he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground without any qualification. So perhaps that's how we're to understand that. You know, and, and of course... Applying it to ourselves, that's sort of the point of this. You know, are we bringing our best? Are we, 
Are we checking a box in our service to God? Or are we living lives as a living sacrifice, wholly dedicated to God? And if we think of that as a spectrum, you know, where are we on that spectrum? And we need to be increasingly more and more devoted to God. So Cain is jealous and he kills his brother Abel. Cain is cursed from the ground and he's forced to wander away. He's banished. And we see some reference to some generations of Cain. Now it's not a full generations of Toledot, one of these 11, but we see some reference to his, his descendants and it just includes more murder and violence. We're looking at verses 17 through 24. Now back to Adam and Eve, who are now left sonless through this murder and banishment. They had another son named Seth, and he was good, and people began to call upon the name of the Lord, mentioning that he's, he's faithful. Now that leads to our generations of Adam, which we're going to go through in a high level. But here's this pattern. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, if you read through this chapter, there are a long list of names and the amount of time they lived and that sort of thing. I'm not going to read through that whole thing. But some highlights we might draw would be, of course, Adam, and then Seth from verses 3 through 7. In verse 21, we see that Enoch fathered Methuselah. In verse 24, Enoch walked with God and didn't die. He was taken up to God. Seemingly here, uh, I think we're to understand a man of faith, such faith that even though the promise is that we'll return to dust, that this individual was taken, taken up to God. Verse 27, we see Methuselah, who lived 969 years, and that's uh, the person we see with the longest recorded lifespan in the uh, Old Testament. And then we see, of course, Lamech and Noah, which leads to chapter 6, the flood of Noah, which would be the next installment of this lesson, if the Lord provides for me to be able to do that in the future. So as we think about what we've covered, you know, what a mighty God we serve, that he's able to create all things that we see. And he cared enough to tell us about it through his word. And he provided us this great creation. He provided mankind with a perfect dwelling place in the very beginning until... Man messed it up with sin. Sin continued with Cain and his descendants. And then we think about Seth. Seth's descendants led to Jesus Christ. And we could even look at Luke chapter 3, verse 38. We're in the, the long uh, genealogy that Luke provides there. He starts with Jesus and goes backwards in time. And then in verse 38, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's the, the lineage of, of Jesus. 
So we see Seth in that line. God provides forgiveness through the death of his own son so that we can have his righteousness accounted to us. We certainly do not deserve that. That is called grace. Be reconciled to God. Will you take hold of the free gift and obey him even tonight? Do you believe in these things? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Are you repenting of your sins? Are you willing to confess Jesus as Lord, as Christ, as the Son of God? Have you been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you been buried with him in baptism and into his death so that you can rise to walk in a new life like his? And, it, and perhaps we've all done that. Are, are we living faithful? Are you living faithful? Are there things that you need to work out and get, and get right with God? Are there things we can help you with tonight? If you're waiting, do you have some decision to make here? Do you have some change to make in your life? Why are you waiting? That's not going to help. If you've got something to do, then do it. And we would encourage you to do that as we stand and sing. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love.